HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by 818 Tequila, delicious and smooth tequila, meaning harmony with the earth. 818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. Hello and welcome to Die Green. I'm Max Sussman. And I'm Kate McCabe. On our show this week, we have Martin McAnamara. Martin is a senior lecturer in the School of Culinary Arts and Food Technology at the Technical University of Dublin. He's also a co-founder and the chair of the Biennial Dublin Gastronomy Symposium and a former trustee of the Oxford Symposium on Food and Cookery. And he's the chair of the Masters in Gastronomy and Food Studies in TU Dublin, which is the first program of its kind in Ireland. We're really excited to have him on the show today. Indeed we are. And we actually recently had the pleasure of going on a food history walking tour of Dublin with Marcin earlier this month. There's no shortage of... uh, of tour guides willing to take you around Dublin, but it was really special experience getting to see the city through his eyes because his academic work focuses on the history of restaurants in Dublin. So every building he was able to tell us a story about the chef who opened the restaurant, where they came from, and going back a hundred years and what it was since then and which restaurant it turned into. So it was really cool to see the city through his eyes. There were even Turkish baths on O'Connell Street that you could bring your horse to, meaning that the horse would also get a bath. We've lost so much. We have. (laughs) We certainly have. But, you know, I was making a joke the other day about, like, how cool it would be if you could go to Google Maps and do Street View, because a lot of times, you know, a restaurant will change or a business will change, and it's like, what was that 10 years ago? Like, what was that before? It was that coffee shop, and... This is a guy who just like knows all that in his head. I really liked the part where he talked about letting the food speak for itself because it seems like everyone that we talk to when we ask them the question, what is Irish food? Everybody talks about the 
either the produce or the meat or cheese or especially the butter. Um, Marcin talks a little bit about the terroir of butter, which I think is an incredibly cool concept. Um, and he talks about how Irish food is, um, you know, one of the maybe more current trends in Ireland is to let the spo- food speak for itself rather than overpowering it with, you know, mother sauces or other things like that. Yeah. That's all you got for me? A yeah? No, no, I'm agree. Letting the food speak for itself. I mean, there's this whole thing about, you know, comparing Irish food to other cuisines. And, you know, I think that's something that keeps coming up in this podcast is just, um, like, how poor of a country Ireland was for much of its history, kind of until, like, very recently. And so, obviously, that impacted the food culture because that impacted the broader culture and society and the way people lived. And um, so I think looking at the food history is a lot about recognizing really what was happening um, during those years and how that impacted the way people ate. So now today, uh, what you have is, like you were just saying, you know, the ingredients, the, the, the land, the produce, a lot of that stuff is very simple, but it's very special at the same time. You know, and it's really interesting, too, because we talk a lot on this show and amongst ourselves about um, how much more multicultural Ireland is today than it was, you know, for example, when my when my father and his family left to come to America. Um, you know, one of the interesting things that we learned from Archine on his walking tour is that some of the first restaurants that opened in Ireland were... Um, I believe Chinese and Indian and that they actually opened, um, you know, a little over a hundred years ago, which is something that you, you know, might not necessarily think would have been the case, you know, knowing Ireland's history. Yeah. I mean, a lot of what you think, I just love when you learn, when you kind of get into this subject and a lot of what you end up learning is sort of at at first blush counterintuitive. And then it makes sense when you learn a little bit more about the context of what was actually happening back then, you know, and he talks about, he'll, he'll get, we'll get into it in the interview where he says, you know, there really weren't Irish restaurants serving Irish food. And there are some uh, reasons in retrospect, it's pretty obvious why that wasn't the case. Just starting off with your name and your background and your, your, your profession. And just tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Martin McConnomere. It's a bit of a handle, but uh, as I say, in Connemara, where my father, father's from on the West coast of Ireland, I would be known as Martin Vili Martin Waikadrehit, which means Martin, son of Billy, which is my father, son of Martin, which is my grandfather, son of Mike, which is my great grandfather of the bridge, because actually the family lived on this small house on the bridge where the Coslo River flowed under them. So, you know, for me, I've have an uncle Martin Makanumra and a grandfather Martin Makanumra. So, uh, even though it might be an unusual name for other people, it was never for me growing up. You know, um, I'm a chef by trade. Uh, I've been teaching uh, culinary arts and uh, for over nearly 25 years now in uh, it, what was the Dublin Institute of Technology in Cahill Brewer Street. But uh, around two years ago, we have uh, gained university status. We, gained, we became Ireland's first technological university. We have moved to this purpose-built new campus, state-of-the-art campus, uh, university campus, right in the heart of Dublin City. I sort of go back to my father a little bit because I, even though I grew up in Dublin, I grew up speaking the Irish language uh, as my first language, which was sort of unusual uh, in the city. Uh, we went to an all Irish primary school and secondary school, and we were sort of immersed 
in the whole tradition of the language and the songs and the poetry and the mythology and the culture and stories and all that sort of stuff growing up. Um, as many, my, my father was, a, I suppose he, my father started off as a primary teacher and then got into journalism and then ended up as a university lecturer. Uh, but it's funny, you know, as a teenager, you, you, you tend to rebel a bit and I sort of went the other way. Uh, you know, I became a chef. Um, my mother was an excellent cook. Um, so we grew up, you know, we always with really good food at home. And I started work at the age of uh, 10 or 11 in a local uh, grocery store. Uh, and it was one of these old sort of grocery stores that sold fish on a Friday and, you know, used to cut their own rashers and, you know, their bacon or what we call rashers. Um, you know, they used to, you know, we used to break down, go to the veg market and, break down big bags of potato into sort of half stone bags and things like that. And uh, got a good sense of, uh, you know, we used to, you know, cut our own hams and corned beef and hazlets and all the different, you know, meats and that sort of stuff for sandwiches and stuff like that. But um, so I got a sense of food sort of early, both sort of from home and also from, uh, I suppose, a commercial perspective. And uh, I suppose when I was in school, I was one of the first few of the men in school or boys to actually do home economics uh, for, for my leaving certificate, you know what I mean? So to join the girls in the home economics class. And I found that my food seemed to turn out better than other people's, you know what I mean? And uh, I suppose I, I got into it and, and uh, I, I ended up sort of becoming a chef. Well, not, I didn't become a chef straight away because as I say, my father, there were six children in the family. And my father had got to, he'd got taken a job in the university. And probably one of the reasons he took the job, a full-time job in the university, was that there was free fees for children of university staff at the time. And, you know, he, you know, realized he valued education. And so here comes his eldest son, the third in the family, but the eldest son of two sisters, uh, older than me. And uh, there was uh, four boys then, but, uh, and the eldest son was turning his nose on going to university and deciding to go to, you know, to, to chef school, you know, and do an apprenticeship sort of thing. And uh, so he, he, he convinced me to do a year in university, uh, which I did. So I studied, you know, Irish economics and history uh, for a year and then gained my I suppose I gained a what we call a J1 visa, which is this great sort of student visa that allows Irish students, or used to allow Irish students anyway, uh, to work in the United States for the summer. And uh, I headed off then to uh, New York and Boston and Cape Cod and had a great summer in um, had a great summer down in, in Orleans in, in 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 Cape Cod that first year and travelled around the states and. I ended up traveling, I ended up for the next few years sort of working, you know, in, in different restaurants and, and stuff like that. And, and, and I finally came back to college, I suppose, when I was around 21. And I, I as a sort of bit of a mature student and did my, um, my, my chef's program there. So, so that's sort of a, I, I don't know if you want me to stop there or keep going. Oh, that's you know great. I mean? but, so you finished, um, you, you, you went to a year of university and then when you came back, you were in a different program, right? You went to more of the chef culinary program at that yeah, point I, I basically yeah what I did is I did a year in, a year in university and then I I took a few years off and went sort of traveling and working you know what I mean so I used to work in London and I used to work in Dublin and I'd work very hard always for around three or four months and then I'd go traveling for around you know a month to a six weeks and then work really hard again so I, I did you know there's this sort of interrail ticket you can get uh, which gives you free rail travel around Europe for a month you know so one year I went as far north as the Arctic Circle and Finland 
inland and as far south as Athens and Greece in one month, you know, and uh, the, the the other year I did it, I ended up down in Morocco, you know, mm-hmm. and then, you know, uh, all over the south of France and all, all over Europe as well, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it was a wonderful way of actually, you know, it's it, 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 your travel is another form of education, really, you know what I mean? And that whole traveling as well opened my eyes to all sorts of foods as well. Like I remember I had eaten an olive in my friend's home as a child and had to run upstairs to spit it out because I thought it was disgusting. You know what I mean? I didn't know. Maybe I thought it was going to taste like a grape or something like that because of the look of it. And suddenly I remember this sort of, you know, eureka moment down in, in Provence or down the south of France, you know, where you eat sort of a sort of a pizza with these lovely sort of black olives on top of it and sort of some anchovies and just, you know, gorgeous, like, you know, um, and you know, just even 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 that even that just that simple beauty, like you know, when you're traveling like that, you had very little money, but like on very little money, since you you were camping, you know what I mean? You could buy a bottle of wine, you could buy a baguette, you could buy you know a chunk of cheese and a bit of salami, and you know you were sitting there in in a glorious place, looking out at the sunset, like you know you're in heaven. You know what I mean? What more could you want? You know what I mean? My I mentioned my father earlier on. My father was sort of a, a he. he was an avid sort of folklore collector, but he was really into songs, traditional songs and stories. So he always had a tape recorder with him in the car. And, uh, you know, summer times, you know, we'd spend down the west of Ireland and he'd always have the tape recorder and a bottle of whiskey in the back of the car. And he'd meet some old guy and, you know, we'd maybe stay in the car for an hour like, and, and he'd go in and take out the whiskey and take out the tape recorder and he'd come back out having, you know, taken some amazing folklore or songs or stuff from some fella in a cabin that you thought was about to fall down or whatever, you know what I mean? <laughs> so, so, so I understood from him, I understood the value of older people and stories and really particularly the underclass as well, you know what I mean? So that's what I started to do and what started originally as a master's program ended or a master's thesis ended up as a PhD, you know, it took me five and a half years, which ended up being, I think, what do they call it? I think I called it something like the, the influence of French haute cuisine on the emergence and development of, of uh, restaurants in Dublin, 1900 to 2000 or something like that, an oral history, you know what I mean? So, uh, so that's sort of got me into got me into all of that and and it sort of I suppose it it turned me maybe from just a pure chef to being sort of like a chef researcher and then to be sort of a culinary historian and then to move on and to 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 to, to be interested in, in 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 all of these things yeah that's great thank you um that's actually a really good transition to one of the questions i wanted to ask you uh so i did i looked up and i saw the the paper that you were referencing i really was wondering if you could speak a little bit about the relationship between Hot cuisine and the what you might call the uh, you know the rustic cuisine or the more typical cuisine of Ireland and what some of the connections are and um, how that's how that's changed as people's relationship to food has changed especially especially recently and the sort of in you might what you might call like sort of the shift in attention away from uh, you know French techniques um, towards more local. Uh, Irish ingredients and techniques. Yeah, you no, know, no, like this idea. You know, you, you, even today, you, you very you you see very little restaurants that are called Irish restaurants, right? 
And in the same way as actually, you know, we see very little Polish restaurants or whatever, you know what I mean? So it's, and it's not as if that Irish food has not been eaten in Ireland or that Polish food has not been eaten in Ireland, but actually that, that the idea of an Irish cuisine is food in the home. I suppose that's probably the best way of putting it. You know, that the Irish cuisine is something that you eat at home. It's something that your mother prepared for you. It's something that you prepare for your family. It's, you know, it's got its own sort of unique, you know, feel to it. You know, it is essentially, it is sort of, you know, meat, potatoes and two veg sort of thing with some sort of sauce and some version of that or a stew. And, and it, you know, it rotates over the week or over the month or over the year, depending on, on, on your know, certain traditions and certain times of year. And, you know, we look forward to new potatoes when they come. We look forward to fresh salmon when it comes. We look forward to, you know, game season. We look forward to different times like that. But this is food in the home. Like we look forward to wintertime and hot stews or casseroles and stuff like that, or, you know, coddle if you're from Dublin or, you know, other things if you're from other parts of the country, you know what I mean? The other thing about it is, it's that something it's it's it, it's very, it's very unique to your own house because like something like a stew. Now a stew, the, a good stew is the stew your mother made, and like to go in to, even to your next door neighbour and to have to taste someone else's stew was oh, you know what I mean? It was it was dodgy because you know your whole taste, your whole taste preference was based on on the taste preference you you were reared with in your home. You know, and you could have an amazing cook of a mother or you can have an absolutely rubbish cook as a mother. But whatever flavor principles either of them gave to you, to you, that was God. That was brilliant. That was that was it. And anything else was dodgy. Whereas when the whole idea about restaurants, like restaurants were sort of a, you know, sort of like an international concept, like this idea, but it was international cuisine. And there were sort of rules to say that this is how you do things. And hence the whole, you know, French hegemony of, you know, haute cuisine. And, you know, so regardless of where in the world you're ha- you were, if you were having, you know what I mean, uh, salmon, salmon hollandaise, you know what I mean? The hollandaise should be the same. If you're doing bouffe le bourguignon, it should be the same. So there was these sort of rules and these garnishes and these you know, sauces and etc. And and you know the whole idea about mother sauces and you know turning your bechamel into your your mornay or etc. etc. So and the fact then like French haute cuisine also had this sort of cachet to it. So everywhere up until like up until relatively recently, like really up until the last 15 years, you could say, you know, with the whole, I suppose the whole El Bouli and the whole Noma phenomenon. Uh, up until that time, like French restaurants were the most expensive and were the sort of deemed to be the best in the world, no matter where you are, whether you're in Singapore or whether you're in New York or whether you're in, in, in London or Dublin or, or, or Paris, you know, uh, whereas, you know, that zeitgeist has changed. Um, my mother used to, you know, my mother used to sort of get annoyed going to restaurants because she would pay a lot of money to get food that wasn't as good as what she cooked at home herself. Do you know, so it, the thing about that's why I think sometimes a lot of people when they go out, they might like going to Asian restaurants or they might like going to French restaurants because they're going to try something that they haven't that they don't normally do at home themselves. They don't have a yardstick to judge it against to get that as disappointed. Whereas actually, if you go and if you suddenly get like even if you get okay a really nice sort of cutlet, lamb cutlets, and really beautifully cooked potatoes, you know, if you're a good cook at home, you do that anyway, and you're not paying fifty dollars or whatever, you know what I mean? Irish food has developed in the last 
15 years, but 20 years particularly, from a time where people used to nearly laugh at the idea about Irish cuisine, whereas nowadays, thanks to a number of different um, elements, but uh, nowadays we have some of the, you know, we've always had the best food, but we've some of the best restaurants and we've some of the best chefs in, in, in the world now as well. And I really believe that in, in a few years time that Ireland will be known as a global food tourism destination. Yeah, I would love to hear a little bit more about that, um, particularly, uh, you know, the way that Irish Irish cuisine has evolved and the way that the perception of Ireland around the world um, is changing in terms of it being a food destination. Could you talk about that? Yeah, there was the, I suppose everyone, but because of the famine, people consider when they think about Ireland, they think about, they think about two things. They think about beer, whiskey, and potatoes, right? And that's it. So we're sort of pigeonholed as sort of drunks and potato eaters, and that's it, you know? And even um, Hasaya Diner, who is a, a Harvard scholar who has written about sort of various different migrants coming to New York and to America, like she's written about the Jewish, the Italians, and the Irish. In her book, Hungering for America, um, she, 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 she made a comment that, you know, dissimilar to the Jews and to the Italians, that the Irish never really wrote about their food in their poetry or their songs or never really showed any sort of discernment in their food. Do you know what I mean? I think she was thinking that we're just more into drink and that food was something we did to, to think. And, and I remember when I read this, I thought there was something strange here because, you know, I'm, I grew up with songs and like there's a, there's a song called More the War, uh, you know, Big Mary in, in Irish. And there's a line in it, she, you know, she, you know, she's the person that she would put the nice big potatoes uh, away from me near the heart. So our, our, there was another line in it, sort of, which means it's not with, it's not with periwinkles or with barnacles are with lots of cured herring that I will I will um, win the heart of Mary, but with strong brandy from England. So that and that's just one song. Like and there's hundreds of them um, that are food, you know, songs, poetry, all that sort of stuff. Stories like even our mythology and uh, you know the uh, as I say the most famous. Uh, myth in Ireland is the town of Bokulin is the cattle raid of Cooley. It's about a, you know stealing a bull and yeah the Qu- Queen Maeve, who's the main character in that actually thing, gets killed later on by a chunk of hard cheese that's being thrown at her, you know, by a, a a slingshot by her nephew as revenge for her killing her own sister and stuff like that. You know what I mean? So food permeates our, you know all of our, our our culture, but unfortunately, a lot of people like this Harvard scholar didn't necessarily have access to sources in the Irish language and were not familiar with the true tradition. But the other thing that happened, as, as, as I'm sure you're familiar with, is this you know, new zeitgeist, I suppose, that happened, I suppose, up in... like it's, It started... You could say it started with the new Basque cooking in some way and then going to Catalan cuisine to some extent, but it really started with the sort of Scandinavian uh, thing and the, the, the sort of manifesto, the Nordic manifesto. The idea about actually being proud of your own local food and about using, you know, what's on your doorstep and using tra- the traditions of your area. Because let's face it, like in the 1990s, like, what was hot in food was actually fusion. 
So the idea was that, you know, I worked in restaurants. We were doing these sort of cala tal, you know what I mean? California, Italy, you know, Caesar salad with a bit of this. And actually, when I think of it, a Caesar salad was so shishi and so cool. You know what I mean? And now everyone goes, gets it in the supermarket. They, they don't think nothing <laughs> of it. You know what I mean? Like the, how, how these things change over, right. you know, trends change. But, you know, really now it's all about sustainability and it's all about sourcing and it's all about working with your suppliers and it's all about understanding nearly the terroir of butter or the terroir of potatoes or the terroir of uh, your, like your, your meat. One of, the, one of the people who has probably done more for Irish food in the last 50 years, uh, she's dead now, God rest her, is uh, Myrtle Allen, you know, from Ballymaloo House. A wonderful, wonderful woman. You know, she opened up. I think in 1962 or 63, she opened up a dining a, a restaurant in her dining room. She was self-trained. She was a housewife from from East Cork, but uh, it was all about you know basically everything that they do in Noma, everything like they do that. She was doing it 50 years ago, um, more 60 years ago, and uh, but she did a lovely story because she spoke about um, she was buying feed or she was buying butter from um, a local farmer you know and um, anyway the next week the farmer arrives and and she says to the farmer she says um she says that butter you gave me last week she says that was particularly beautiful and the farmer turned around and says yeah he says that field always made good butter you know like and that's like that's the terroir you know what i mean like, like that's and, and that's the essence of it really because you know the sim you know really when you realize that as chefs we're trained in this sort of French way of trying to nearly dominate food and show your skill and your technique. Whereas actually this new zeitgeist, and it's something that happens as you grow up, as you get older as a chef as well, is that you get the self-confidence to let the food speak for itself. And once you can actually source good food, you know, the less you do with it, the better, you know what I mean? And, and, and it'll be gorgeous. You let it speak for itself. So yeah. all that sort of answers how we've got, you know, we've gone on this sort of journey where now we really, you know, we work closely with our suppliers and like restaurants like Chapter One and so many different restaurants in Dublin and in Ireland, like they will actually have the name of the suppliers, like as part of the dish, it could be like, you know, Fingal Ferguson's, you know, chorizo, you know, along with, you know, David Lloyd's, you know, apple or bals apple balsamic or whatever. So um, it's uh, we're 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 working in partnerships now. Yeah, which is great. that's great. I'm Chava Perivan, co-host of Agave Road Trip on HRN, here to talk about 818 Tequila. 818 creates their tequila using traditional methods that a family-owned and operated distillery in Jalisco, Mexico. From the blue agave they grow to their recycled glass bottle. 818 emphasizes the Earth's importance in all they do. Their distillery runs on biomass and solar power, which means they don't rely as much on fossil fuels and are able to reduce their carbon footprint. Their labels, corks, and boxes are all certified by the Forest Stewardship Council as coming from sustainability-managed forests. 818 is a proud member of 1% for the Planet, through which they support HRN as well as Sacred my organization in Jalisco, where together we transform agave byproducts and water waste into adobe bricks that are donated to local infrastructure projects, like a local library in Zapotitlan de Vadillo. Visit drink818.com to learn more about their sustainability efforts and find 818 near you. 818 has been part of so many magical nights for me, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. 
818 Tequila, imported by 818 Spirits, Manhasset, New York. 40% alcohol by volume, drink responsibly. If someone asked you coming to Ireland for the first time and they were interested in food, where would you direct them to have a really special experience? Where do you think people can, can find what's happening in Irish food today? Well, I, I, think, I think there is no one Irish food, you know, and I think that's the... So I would suggest that if people are coming to Ireland, that they would be, you know, there should be a number of experiences that they should have. Some of them might work out quite expensive and some of them would be very, very cheap, you know, street food, you know, and something and other things in between. But each of them are part of the story of Irish food because, you know, we have. I think something like 13% of the Irish population are born elsewhere, you know what I mean, which is, which is quite big for Europe, actually, you know what I mean? So, like, we've moved from being sort of like quite an insular, you know, country which exported our people to suddenly being quite an open economy with very internationally. Like, I think there's something like 154 languages spoken in Ireland at the moment, you know what I mean? So, it, I, I'm, so it's really part of that whole new Irish story is embracing, you know, that new Irish culture and those sort of fusions between, you know, Irish, you know, mother or Irish father and, and, and Nigerian or Polish or Lithuanian or whatever, um, Chinese or whatever the, 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 the people are from, the, the, the new Irish are coming from all over the place. And, uh, and just really embracing that, you know, uh, an interesting version of that is that like a few years ago, like uh, this new sort of takeaway food came, which is called sort of a spice bag, you know, and it became this sort of thing. But, but this is basically sort of chips. We're always into chips anyway, like fish and chips, you know, and that. But this was chips from a Chinese restaurant or a Chinese takeaway that had sort of a sort of Asian spices, sort of cinnamon and sugar and a bit of chili and stuff in it. And then some onions and peppers and sort of strips of chicken that had been sort of stir fried and mixed in with it. And just, it became this sort of phenomenon, you know, and all the kids were getting into it, you know, and, you know, we all started to eat it then and try it and all that sort of stuff, you know what I mean? But it's not something you're going to get like, so, you know, if you went to China or if you went to whatever, they, they wouldn't know what a spice bag was. So it's, it's, it's an Irish slant on a on a, on a on an ethnic or a, an Asian food sort of thing, and yet we've different versions of that all over the place. But I suppose the other thing you definitely need to be looking at our cheese as well. Well, the thing is, I think the best thing we have is our butter, because Irish butter is just like no other butter. You know, Irish milk is just wonderful. Um, oats, you know, I have I you know, eat porridge oats in the morning. But it's, and, and actually, when I think about it, what I eat for my breakfast in the morning is probably what my ancestors six thousand years ago ate. You know what I mean? It's 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 oats, it's water, it's salt, it's milk, and then boiled up, and then I put some honey and some hazelnuts. Do you know what I mean? And sometimes in summertime, if after like after I've made some you know blackberry jam or something like that, I might put a big bit of big chunk of instead of the honey, I might put a big chunk of blackberry and apple jam into it. Do you know what I mean or whatever, which is again forage food from Ireland. You know, so it's it, you know it's amazing that some of these food traditions are hidden in plain sight. And it's not really until we leave the country that we realize that they're not widely available and that they're actually quite unique and they're quite special. You know what I mean? I mean, it's so interesting how you just spoke and kind of wove together two, two of the questions I was going to ask, which was about how immigration is affecting what people think of as Irish food. 
So I love what you're talking about the spice bags. And I was wondering if you had any other, um, but it's also, any other it's, interest. Yeah. Yeah. It's also interesting as well, because even at that high level of food, you know, this idea about the Michelin starred sort of level, you know, you mentioned you, you at an Amsher, like Jordan Bailey has come over now. He he's from England, you know, but again, he suppose got his, zeitgeist you know he spent quite a number of years like oh, i think it was in, i can't remember was it Maymo or, or or which one of the the mm-hmm. nordic restaurants he 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 was chefing and you know what i mean and stuff like that um but like we have you know the the other uh michael vildenen has just taken over actually um he left the greenhouse and just gone to chapter one uh he's from actually i think he was born in sweden and grew up in finland but again he's been in ireland for over 20 years if you listen to him, he's more Irish than the Irish themselves, sort of thing. But we have another fella, uh, Ahmed Didi, uh, down in Baltimore, uh, in um, in Cork. And again, you know, Ahmed is um, he's Turkish, but he's been in Ireland for years, and uh, and he sort of learned to cook in Ireland. But he's actually, and he was cooking sort of new Irish food. But he, in, in his latest thing now, he's taken over and he's looking at you know he, he's bringing in Turkish flavors and that sort of stuff. So so it's really. You know, I, I think it's I think it's about being open and open minded, and celebrating. You know, I think this day of insularism, like in the end of the day, it's because of the zeitgeist of sustainability and stuff. It's going to be Irish chicken and Irish beef and Irish lamb. It may be some Turkish spices, or it may be some sort of you know uh, Nordic sort of techniques or whatever. But it's still like it's still Irish food. It's all Irish food, and it'll always be Irish food, whether it's really hot and spicy or whether it's really bland or whatever. It's still Irish food. Do you know what I mean? In the same way as that, if you're eating in in in, in Shanghai, it's, it's it's Shanghai food. If you're eating in Turkey, it's Turkish food. Do you know what I mean? I think we we are celebrating our multiculturalism, and I think that the next generation, like I have two daughters now, like in. 19 and 23 or whatever like i mean they're just totally celebrating and triumphant foods you know everyone is just you know it's much more open and much more sustainable as well and much more in tune also with the with the environment and that sort of stuff you know definitely i mean do you see the um from your perspective do you see a lot of the just talk around sustainability as being a big part of of irish cooking and irish food right now i know it's something that everyone's interested in and how much do you think it's actually getting to be something that people are considering when they're making their purchasing decisions or their cooking decisions? Yeah, I think I think it is important. Um, I think it is important. And I think particularly since COVID as well, with the lockdown, I think we have become more sustainable in some way and more... I suppose, appreciative of local businesses as well and trying to maybe spend our money locally. Now, that said you know, that's within, you know, within reason, because you still find like so many places in the world that probably 80% of the money is on food is spent within four or five main supermarkets. I have a bit of an pr- issue with it, with, you know, because this whole idea about sustainability, we have, there's, there's a certain amount of mixed messaging. Because, for example, you know, the whole thing about the Eat Lancet report and saying that we need to cut down and eating meat and eating beef in particular and stuff like that, uh, because how heavy it is on the environment. Like there's a difference in my eyes, there's a big difference between grass fed beef and you know, f- beef that has been 
grown on corn on big you know corn lots or something like feed lots you know what i mean in in, in the midwest in america or something like that you know what i mean they're two different animals completely because you know we're talking here about you know food miles but you're talking about feed miles because not only in ireland is the uh food is is the cow grass-fed but it's also self-fed do you know what i mean isn't the, it's the, the cows are out in the field they're they're you know no there is no feed miles do you know what I mean? The food is just there and they, and they're, and the way they, they you know, they, they, they've taken on a lot of, I suppose, new technology and new science from places like New Zealand in sort of using, a, you know, a, an electric fence to guard, to cut off bits of the field and then move the cattle onto the next bit instead of leaving them all on one big field, you know, and they get, more, they seem to get more, um, more grass and, and better grass, you know what I mean? Uh, that way, uh, but, you know, I think, I think that's very sustainable. You know, that, you know, there's issue with water, you know what I mean? Um, and there's, you know, there, there, so like, I know water is going to be the new gold in many ways, like, but Jesus, in Ireland, it rains all the time. Like, why are we complaining about water? You know what I mean? You know, we just need to be a bit more creative um, and, and things like that. So, you know, you just have to, have to, have to be careful, like, it sort of annoys me when I think about people giving out, you know, talking about their soya latte or their almond latte or something like that. You know what I mean? These sort of cool hipster kids, you know, who are sort of, you know, the Greta Thunberg generation. And you're saying, Christ, where the hell did that soya milk or that, you know, almond milk and how did it get here when we have cows down there feeding off grass, you know, producing beautiful milk, you know what I mean? And yet, you know, you're, you're, you're deemed to be sustainable because you're using soya or whatever, you know what I mean? What about the, the feed miles and the air miles and all that sort of stuff? So I think we need to get that balance right as well, you know? I appreciate that distinction because I do think that the word is very trendy right now and it can be used to uh, mean things and, and sell things that aren't actually necessarily good for the environment or done in the proper way. And the funny thing about it is that the more like, you know, again, I'm you know, interested in food history and in sort of folklore and stuff like that. But, you know, the way our ancestors, the way our parents and grandparents lived was completely sustainable because, you know, the consumer thing didn't. They were basically self-sufficient, yeah. except they were totally self-sufficient, except for, you know, they bought the only thing they bought in the shop was sugar, flour sometimes and, and tea. You know I mean? And these were sort of luxuries. So basically everything else was self-sustainable. And then the idea is that the pig was basically your refuge, your refuge collector. You sent them those left over was fed to the pigs or to the hens. Um, all of that sort of stuff would ended up on the ground or, you know, was brushed out and that stuff ended up as fertilizer up in the field. Like it's just, you know, it's this idea about the, the, the cycle and the big problem, I think, with all sustainability is, you know, is, is waste. We're wasting so much food. We're not sure the other day now, just, you know, say Monday, rather than go to the shop, I decided, no, let's just have a look what's in the fridge. And I ended up making a really, really nice frittata just out of little bits. And like my daughter was looking, it's nothing in there. You need to get something. She says, no, sure enough, half an hour later, I had this amazing, you know, really tasty, you know, because you're out there sort of cleaning out the fridge, but turning it into something, you know, create. And again, it's that idea, but just a bit of creativity. And actually just, not just that, it's not just a bit of creativity, but actually having the value that you don't want to just throw this stuff out. You're not just going to buy stuff just because you think we're running a bit short. Use what you have. Like the likes of Darina Allen speaks about that a lot. You know, people talk about these sort of organic chickens being really expensive and, you know, and, and, and I get where they're coming for. If you can pick up a chicken for six euro or something like that, great. 
But like when she talks about buying a nice, really nice organic chicken for 15 euro or something like that, you know, she's talking about getting three dinners out of it. You know what I mean? Not just one, you know, but she's talking about actually, you know, getting, you know, one dinner out of it and then using the leftovers for another dinner and then using the bones and the whole lot to actually make up a really good chicken broth and making a nice soup or something out of it. So it's about, you know, really using the food and, uh, and getting value out of it. So, you know, as I say, you get out of it what you put into it. I just wanted to follow up on the tourism question. What has changed recently in terms of making Ireland a, a tourist destination specifically for food? And do you see people coming to travel to Ireland for food as like the main experience? And do you think that is a new thing or do you think that's something that will continue to develop in the next few years? Yeah. Um, you know, an hour from Dublin, you can go up to the Boyne Valley. You can visit, you know, a goat's cheese maker. You, know, uh, you can visit a, this amazing keeved cider maker. You can go to Rock Farm and look at a whole sustainable farming practices using sort of, you know, um, the old you know, heritage breeds and all that sort of stuff. There's uh, the Glide Inn. And the Glide Inn is a sort of gastro pub. And they've recently sort of understood the story. They, 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 they have these... Um, what do we call them at all? Uh, cockles. Uh, oh, we call them Scanamara. Scana, scana um, see, I'm thinking in Irish, I'm trying to think of the English of it. Uh, they uh, Razor clams. The, the, the local tradition there was harvesting these razor clams, right? But they never thought about selling them, never thought anyone would want to eat them. Yet he goes and he, his town was linked with a, a town down in Galicia in Spain. And he went to like from the local place to the Mission Star place. They were serving razor clams. Said, Jesus, we're full of them out there. No one respects them. So he now celebrates them. Do you know what I mean? So sometimes like what is absolutely local and nearly thrown away because of no respect is actually gold somewhere else in the world. And it's just about understanding that and then getting people working together and then developing a story around it. And people love that because really what people, people love people and what people love is people love stories. And if you can actually tell a story to someone, they'll remember that story. And if that story can be attached to food, all the better. Where is one place within Ireland that you love to travel for food? Like a region outside of Dublin, I mean. I don't, you know, it's, 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 it's a hard one because there's so many, like, as in, I mentioned the, the Boyne Valley, like the Boyne Valley is amazing for food. Kilkenny is amazing for food. You know, Cork is amazing for Galway. You know what I mean? Like, so wherever you go, really, even go down to Waterford, like, you know what I mean? There's, there's wonderful food actually everywhere now in, in, in Ireland, you know, Donegal, the whole, like there's, there, to be honest, there's very few places you can go in Ireland that you're not going to get good food. Do you know what I mean? So I wouldn't necessarily be going traveling for the food, but I'd be going traveling and food would be a part of it always. You know what I mean? There's a small island called Inish Boffin mm-hmm. just off the Galway coast there, you know, out from Clifton, out that way. And like we arrive there sometimes like, you know, on sort of holidays and, you know, to sit down and to order some, you know, pints of Guinness and some crab cloths. You know what I mean? Like a big nearly bucket of crab cloths comes out and brown bread and butter. And I tell you something, and you're looking out at the Atlantic and, you know, you know, it just doesn't get much better than that. You know, it really doesn't. You know what I mean? It's just gorgeous, you know. So fresh crab claws, brown bread, butter and creamy points of Guinness. Yeah, that sounds Bring great. I can't think of a better place to end it than there. That sounds perfect. 
Karamakit, lovely talking to you. Thanks. Great to talk to you too. I really appreciate your time. Dyed Green is a project of Bog and Thunder, whose mission is to highlight the best of Irish food and culture through food tours, events, and media. Find out more at bogandthunder.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you have any story suggestions, questions, or things you'd like to share in response to our broadcast, you can email us directly at dyedgreen at heritageradionetwork.org.